Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When Ralph Nader was a boy, his daddy brought him home a toy. And the darn thing fell apart that very day. Ralphie hollered long and loud, then he calmed down and he vowed. He would get them crooks who cheated him that way. Now they can't tempt him, they can't scare him, they can't bribe him, heaven knows. Cause a million bucks he'd gladly sacrifice. His life is dedicated to protecting us from those who try to sell us shoddy merchandise. Come on and ride, Ralph Nader, ride. Help us buy with confidence and pride. All consumers across the nation are filled with admiration. And we're proud we got Ralph Nader on our side. Well, we, we are definitely proud that we have Ralph Nader on our side. We have Ralph Nader on our show, even. Uh, I don't need to tell you who Ralph Nader is, uh, but I will anyway. He's a lifelong consumer advocate, uh, sometimes a candidate for president, author most recently of Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. We're going to talk to Ralph today about the condition of our political system uh, and the way that has been manifested both last week and this at the conventions of major parties. But Ralph, I know before we do that, you would like us to know all about an event that you're hosting uh, in your native land of Winstead. The, is it the booming Winstead Book Festival? That's right. It's worthy of you, Colin McEnroe, and uh, your friends. It's going to be next uh, Saturday and Sunday, July 30, 31st, and all new books published in various years. Some of them have, have changed America, and others uh, bid to change America for the better. There are also novels. There are children's books. want the family to come with the children without the cell phone so they can... Uh, uh, get into the life of the mind. Uh, the motto is thinkers read, readers think. Readers think, thinkers read. And we also have five uh, lectures. I'm speaking uh, in, on Saturday, but we have Eric Foner, the mm-hmm. famous American historian on his new book on the Underground Railroad, which went through Litchfield County. We have uh, the expert on ethnic gardens, Patricia Kleindings, uh, how uh, people coming to this country as immigrants bond together through ethnic gardens and cuisine. Uh, we have the world's expert on the commons, uh, everything we own but don't control, uh, like the public lands and public airways and trillions of dollars of pension money uh, and other things. Uh, that's David Bollier. Yeah, we know we know David quite well. He's been on our show many times. Oh, yeah, good. Um, yeah, he's having uh, gatherings around the world, not just the U.S., as people want to recover the commons, as the phrase goes. He's got his book called Thinking Like a Commoner. And uh, and then there's uh, the historian of Litchfield County, apparently a real character. He teaches at a local high school, Peter Vermilia. He's just come out with his second book on Litchfield County called Wicked Litchfield County. <laughs> he's on at noon on Sunday, July 31st, and the other's including myself, are on uh, Saturday. So we have it, and, and they're very discounted, uh, Colin, books. Even though they're new books, uh, uh, unused, uh, the uh, 
the books that have come out are discounted. So, for example, we have a whole bunch of books uh, for $5 each. If you buy two, you get one free. You buy eight, you get four free plus a free lunch at a new Mediterranean restaurant down the road. So it's got a lot of appeal, and we're trying to build community in uh, places like Winstead, and we hope people come from all over Litchfield County and uh, bring their children. Also, they can just go up the street a little bit and see the only uh, law museum in the world, the American Museum of Tort Law, which is uh, a great, great uh, visit, the law of wrongful injury, what law protects you when somebody injures you uh, to get a remedy, uh, disclose uh, defects of products and uh, malpractice, et cetera, and um, deter unsafe practices. So it's going to be a great weekend. Hope the weather holds out. Uh, July 30, 31st. More details, just go to Winstead Book festival.com winstead bookfestival.com all right that's ralph nader channeling ron popeil there for the hope it's like booming too much people are but in what sense is it booming i hesitate to ask ralph why is it a booming winstead book festival it's hope hope it's booming with hope (laughs) all right Uh, like some towns who've lost all their factories Winston's coming back. It's had a long oh, like Boomtown, Boomtown, yeah, like yeah. that it's, kind of booming. Okay, yeah, I got it. The now. community college, and it's going to have the biggest uh, mural display well, on we American know all workers that, yeah. in the in the country. Forty five foot tall. That's opening next year. Bonding money well spent, I say. Yeah. All right, so we have to move on here. Sure. Uh, obviously, you have been a very prominent critic over the last couple of decades of the two-party system in America and the way the two parties are functioning. We'll get to third parties in a second, Ralph, but you've had a chance to watch the Republican convention unfold. Last week, the Democrat convention, the Democratic convention starts with the kind of fiasco that you kind of hope will never happen, where there's been a WikiLeaks dump, the chairman is going to have to step down, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. I assume in some ways this just kind of confirms the Ralph Nader theory of major parties, that they don't really do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, well, we see big money in politics. Uh, We see the hospitality suites of corporations and trade associations at these conventions. Uh, We see uh, the uh, dirty tricks that are played. Uh, I've always uh, thought that the Democratic Party itself was very, very uh, biased against Bernie Sanders. I mean, not only structurally, uh, but uh, what came out of WikiLeaks uh, was pretty bad. Uh, He had a chance to to win the primary uh, around the country. I think if he had more open primaries and and fewer unelected uh, crony superdelegates, he he might well have done it. Uh, So how do people view all this? Well, they can be spectators, Colin. Mm-hmm. And they can cuss and grind, you know, be be morose or angry or whatever. Or <clears throat> they can try to put some pressure on the parties. One way is to say they're going to vote for third parties. That often is a competitive push. And we have a Libertarian Party on the right and the Green Party on, on the left. Uh, they can also demand more debates and more... Uh, open debates. There are going to be three presidential debates coming up in the fall. Uh, they're controlled by a, a nonprofit corporation created by the Democrat Republican Party. It's officially called the Commission on Presidential Debates, although it's a private corporation, funded by corporate money. And uh, the two parties who control it decide uh, who gets on and who doesn't. And the last time that anybody on was uh, 
um, Ross Perot in 1992. He then gets 19 million votes. And in 1996, when he runs again, they keep him off the debate. So we should not allow a private company controlled by the two-party tyranny to reduce the voices and choices available to the American people. Why are we rationing debates? We don't ration video games. <laughs> so let me just talk about this whole third-party thing. So sure. the, obviously the concern, and nobody's more familiar with this concern than you are, is the notion that a vote for Gary Johnson or for Jill Stein uh, might conceivably create an advantage for somebody you don't want to create an advantage for. And if you think the two parties are essentially identical or they have all the same liabilities and the candidates would play out pretty much the same way as presidents, then you don't worry about that too much. But I have to think that Ralph Nader beholding Donald Trump right now would be pretty alarmed by the notion of Donald Trump getting elected, alarmed enough so that he wouldn't necessarily want to take any chances with that. Respond. That's not the only choice. I mean, Donald Trump is is turning the Republican Party into a Trump dump. Uh, you know, he, he throws these nasty monikers against people, lying Ted Cruz, little Marco Rubio, uh, uh, you know, uh, crooked Hillary. Uh, he could be called cheating Donald. He cheated about everything he's dealt with, his investors, workers, consumers, taxpayers, the creditors, you name it. Uh, and he's a living contradiction to what his image projects around the country. But he's going for the Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Fox News vote. And that's not enough for him to win. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a particularly close election. Uh, the best thing going for Donald Trump is Hillary Clinton. She has so many drawbacks. She's viewed, along with Trump, uh, uh, with high polls about her dishonesty and untrustworthiness. Uh, otherwise, uh, the Democrats would have landslided uh, Trump. He can't control himself. That's the problem, Colin, apart from what he says he wants to do, and he never tells us how he does it. He just says, uh, okay, or believe me, after he says he's going to create the steel industry and create more coal jobs and change the tra trade treaties. Okay. He never tells you any uh, pathway because he doesn't know any pathway. But more than that is he can't control himself as a person. Prominent people criticizing him, he'll shove aside the issues of the day, no matter what state he's in, and hurl invectives uh, and, and nasty comments against these people. So it doesn't matter that he's uncontrollable to the Republican establishment. He's unself-controllable. So the choices are bigger than that. We have got to put pressure on these candidates by injecting new issues that then flare in the press. And my point is that we have elections now in this country, bought and paid for, elections that have severed themselves from the civic culture. So you have all these groups around the country who have made America great. Uh, these citizen groups, uh, anti-poverty groups, uh, uh, consumer groups, environmental groups, labor groups, charity groups, all over, they are completely frozen out of the television, radio, and press when the media covers the election, with very few exceptions. They're frozen out. So nobody asks uh, a prominent energy expert who's run the TVA and three other major utilities, David Freeman, about energy policy to, so that that can get injected into the dialogue of the candidates, presidential, uh, congressional, state, and local. Nobody asks Karen Ferguson, who knows the devastating effect on pensions, private and public, that's coming and it's already come. 
and get that in the uh, election dialogue mix. Nobody asked uh, the question, say, of Rob Weissman, a public citizen, about how to shift power from the many uh, from the few to the many. I mean, that's what politics is about. It's about the distribution of power. And if you have a country being run on the ground by too, little, too much power and too few hands deciding for the rest of us, that should be a big thing to discuss. How do you get more power to workers, uh, consumers, small taxpayers, community people, voters? Um, these are the things that occur when you let the citizen groups in, but they are shut up. And, but, but that doesn't mean they just give up. That means they've got to come in as these candidates campaign through their community. They don't just sit, sit there gawking or, you know, booing or praising. They've got to get together, and the citizen groups are already together, and say, look, we want you to put these redirections of American sight on your table. Republican candidate, Democrat candidate, from the presidential all the way down local. But hasn't Ralph? Hasn't that ship already sailed in a, in some sense? I mean, look, we're we're now in the second national convention in two weeks. The Democrats will be laying out whatever their message is over the next four or five days. It seems unlikely to me that if they haven't incorporated the kind of thing that you're talking about, that they're going to do it in between now and November. It's all up to what citizen groups get together. Uh, and inject the systems and the media picking it up. If those two things happen, if the whole pension situation gets on 60 Minutes, gets in the New York Times, AP, gets the local press, they can't avoid it. Uh, so that's the combination. you got federations of consumer groups. You've got labor unions. You've got, uh, you got groups that are interested in the environment and climate change and taxing Wall Street speculation, uh, uh, they, they've got to inject that. The media's got to pick it up. The media is absolutely critical. When, it's, uh, Colin, when I was running for president, people say, who are you running for? I say, well, you want to be practical about it. Uh, I'm running for the media. Because if the media doesn't cover my Green Party candidacy, I can't run for the people. They don't even know I'm running. So that's, that's the combination. And I don't think it's too late at all. Uh, the platforms are over there, paper. Uh, people start paying attention after Labor Day. So there's an eight-week window, and the press can move very fast. The social media can move very fast. And we've got to get these these issues in, even full Medicare for all. A lot of these issues are supported left-right, Colin. They yeah, have 70, 80 percent. Let me just stop you there, because I think there's an – I have a question about this. Sure. So this would seem to be an election about some of the issues you just laid out, and we could put them all under the umbrella of income inequality, right? More than anything else, probably more than foreign policy or climate change or, or anything else that we might talk about. In, income inequality, as defined by the respective candidates, yeah. seems to be driving this election. For Trump, in, income inequality is – in some mystical way uh, related to immigration and stuff like that. And, and, and for the Democrats, certainly Bernie Sanders ran very much on that principle and moved Clinton in the direction of it. What I don't understand is right now there are a lot of Bernie Sanders adherents who seem to be gravitating more towards Gary Johnson, libertarian candidate, than Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate. I know you have longtime Green Party uh, allegiances. Are you surprised by that? I mean, it seems to me a libertarian is less equipped to, uh, to address income inequality than just about anybody. Oh, certainly. I mean, Gary Johnson's against the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he's against consumer protection, regulatory uh, standards for health and safety. He's got good foreign policy, I think, uh, positions. But uh, by and large, you're not going to get the Libertarian Party now uh, pushing on the inequality issue. And, you know, if Bernie doesn't uh, start a nonpartisan civic mobilization after Labor Day with a big rally on the Mall in Washington and then take it regionally, he has started a group called Our Revolution. So maybe he's thinking about that. Uh, if he doesn't do that, uh, Hillary Clinton won't talk much about a $15 minimum wage because uh, because Trump is not pushing in that direction. So a lot of Bernie Sanders' uh, policies will begin to dissipate and fade unless he keeps them alive with all his millions of supporters. Now, I'm not surprised, Colin, that some of his uh, supporters uh, are going to go libertarian. First of all, libertarian uh, convention is over. It's got its publicity. The Green Party convention isn't until a couple of weeks from now in Houston. And so. people go nuts after that Green Party convention, too. That's going <laughs> to yeah. get people cranked up, no question. Yeah. And so uh, I think what happens, if you say the Bernie supporters who voted for him in the primary, some will go libertarian, some will go green, some will go Hillary, some may even go Trump, or uh, I think quite a few may stay home. Uh, that just illustrates my point that a lot of reforms in this country are supported by left-right, by mm-hmm. conservative liberals. And and uh, Bernie appealed to that. Uh, Trump does in some way. Uh, but Bernie's uh, inequality, I think, hit home with a lot of conservative workers in Walmart. A right. lot of people who are trying to make it on under 15 bucks, 12 bucks, 10 bucks. Uh, some states still... Uh, uh, adhere to the federal minimum wage of $7 and a quarter. I mean, if the minimum wage was uh, adjusted for inflation, Colin, from 1968 to today, it would be just under $12 an hour. So there are millions of workers who resonated uh, to that message by Bernie Sanders. I guess the question that I have, I mean, first of all, I agree with what you're saying. I talked to Trump supporters, even at one Trump rally during the primary season. Their second favorite candidate with surprising frequency was Bernie Sanders. This yeah. was back when there were a lot of other Republicans in the field who could have been their second favorite candidate. They weren't. They liked Bernie Sanders almost as much as, as they liked Donald Trump. So a lot of this, I think, does have to do with that sense that there's a gigantic number of people who've been left behind in the economic recovery. The economy recovered. The people didn't. But then you have to ask yourself, well, really, ultimately, at the level of policy, how does that ever get addressed? And it seems to me that one of the things you have to face is the rea- almost the permanent reality is the global economy isn't good for enough people. There are too many people who just get left out of the global economy. And to me, the only way back from that is for government to effectively create work that doesn't otherwise exist, which means probably taking money away from the one percenters to create new job sectors that otherwise wouldn't exist. That's a big government solution. Again, I don't see how libertarians and Gary Johnson are are poised to do anything like that. That's their weakness, because the big government program that most people agree with is repairing America. It's public works. It's yeah. dealing with uh, repairing or starting public transit systems, right. repairing bridges and schools and highways and uh, all kinds of public buildings and uh, uh, libraries. All that is supported locally by the Chamber of Commerce, labor unions, other workers. I mean, who's against it, right? So right. the question always in Congress is, where's the money going to come from? And that's why you've got to put on the table after Labor Day, and there are plenty of citizen groups that can do that if the media picks it up, the bloated military budget. They're not talking about that. 
It's coming in with no audit year after year, according to the Government Accountability Office of the U.S. Congress. Here's the biggest budget around, and it is unauditable. So it's loaded with waste, hundreds of billions of dollars of waste. Uh, And the other area is, of course, uh, restoring the tax rate on corporate profits to what it was in the prosperous 1960s. And then the other area is to tax Wall Street speculation, which the nurses union has been pushing, among other uh, plugging tax loopholes. There's plenty of of money. It's being uh, sent to the wrong hands. And once it goes into public works, you're creating good paying jobs that can't be exported to China and Mexico. So that's the way to go. Ralph, I 100% agree with you. We've been talking to Ralph Nader, a living legend, and so much more. People should go to the booming, should not be afraid of the name, first of all, the Booming Winstead Book Festival. It's on Saturday and Sunday. Some of our favorite authors will be there, including Ralph himself. Uh, It's from 9 to 6 on Saturday and from uh, 10 to 2 on Sunday at 414 Main Street in Winstead. Ralph, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you for your brilliant dialogues. I tell you, you're one of... uh, Very few people around the country. Bill Curry said you're the smartest guy on radio. (laughs) Well, consider the source, Ralph. (laughs) All right. Thanks for for talking to me today. Okay. Thank your listeners, too. Okay. Thank you, listeners. Thanks for listening to Ralph. All right. So what we're going to do now is take a break. We're going to come back. Dave Weagle is a great reporter uh, for The Washington Post. He's been covering the WikiLeaks mess, which is the mess laid at the feet of the Democratic National Convention as it tries to get going. At the gate, it's Naderman. Who will set the record straight? It's Naderman. Who will stop the misinforming? Who will stop the global warming? Naderman, Naderman, Naderman is his name. He will fight, fight, fight. He will... All right, well, let me tell you what's going on here. First of all, I think we might be having a little bit of trouble locating David Weagle from the Washington Post. Um, if we have a lot of trouble, well, I'll take phone calls from you. I'm sure you have a lot of things to talk about. Uh, let me quickly tell you uh, that tomorrow, you may remember all this, that last week we said something about how we're going up to Lenox, Massachusetts. On the other hand, you may not have paid any attention. I think that's the greater likelihood. But anyway, we went up to Lenox, Massachusetts because there was this amazing production of Merchant of Venice up there. And actually, it turns out there's two amazing productions of Merchant of Venice going on at the same time, one in Lenox, one at the uh, Lincoln Center Festival. That one's Jonathan Price. The highest sparrow as Shylock. Uh, Jonathan Epstein, who's an amazing actor, is the uh, other Shylock. So we went up there and we did, we recorded this, I think, really interesting conversation about Merchant of Venice that is not completely divorced from the kinds of things that we're talking about right now in this election, just in the sense that certain people get defined as, quote, the other, capital O, uh, and uh, they get vilified just because of who they are. Uh, and... Uh, anyway, this is, I think you're going to find this a very interesting show. It's on tomorrow. That's my whole point. Uh, we, we taped it on Wednesday. Uh, it's going to be on tomorrow, and we think you're going to like it a lot. Uh, and it, it really is not unrelated to all the things we're talking about, particularly the kind of the rise of xenophobia and nativism as a big part of the uh, talking point of this election. So um, as we're looking around for Dave Weagle, let me also say that in just a moment, maybe even this moment, depending <laughs> on how things go, this, there's a reason we call this show The Scramble. Uh, we're often kind of scrambling around to figure out which guest is which and who's going to be on when. We also want to talk today to Mike Clark. He's a retired FBI agent, uh, and he's um, somebody who, in fact, has become a real voice for a good government and keeping the political system clean. He was involved in the uh, original prosecution uh, of John Rowland. Uh, and 
we have a political I think it's fair to call it a scandal. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure they don't want to call it a scandal. I call it a scandal. We have a, a political scandal here in the state uh, that involves uh, the use of federal funds, the injection of federal funds into a state election where, in fact, co- money from contractors is not supposed to go. And so um, it, it, one of the things we've tried to do in Connecticut is ban the use of contributions from state contractors in gubernatorial elections, especially because they're now publicly funded. They're publicly financed. Um, and somehow or other, they found a way to get that money into the 2014 cycle. Uh, we're going to talk about that. The fact that the federal government is now uh, uh, investigating that after, in fact, the state investigation of it ended in a somewhat controversial settlement. Anyway, as the show goes along, we'll, exp- we'll explain all of that stuff to you. In fact, Mike is about to join us. Um, we may wind up with a t- chance to do open phones uh, as we head into the final segment of today's show. Uh, right now, I'll tell you what the number is. Don't call if we start talking to Mike, though. Uh, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Yeah, we're going to go to Mike in, in just a second here. But maybe in the final segment today, particularly if we don't track down Dave Weigel, um, I'll talk to you about how you feel the Republican convention having concluded and the Democratic National Convention beginning on this very peculiar note, uh, the driving out of the chairman, uh, the release uh, of the WikiLeaks material. I have some very... Uh, pointed thoughts about all that. Uh, So all of that uh, is to come. Right now, we are going to talk to Mike Clark. Uh, He is a retired FBI agent, and he is a professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. Mike Clark, welcome to our show. Hello, Colin. Good afternoon. Good to talk to you. So um, one of the things that we know is that um, there is now, well, at least we know per John Lender, we know that there is some kind of federal activity uh, looking into a story that's been top of mind here in Connecticut for a while. This does involve, as I was saying before, we have state laws that prevent contractors from contributing money to political campaigns that are at the state level within the state. Those campaigns are covered by the Citizens Election Program. You get a grant to run. You only collect money in small amounts in order to qualify for that grant. And then you disqualify yourself from taking money from certain entities, especially contractors who do business with the state. Now, those contractors are able to to contribute to federal accounts. And what was discovered was that money from those federal accounts was used for a so-called get-out-the-vote mailer. But it was a get-out-the-vote mailer that really prominently featured Governor Malloy uh, as the candidate. So, so supposedly, money from those people, the contractors, is not supposed to be used to benefit this candidate, a candidate for governor of Connecticut. But somehow or other, that was circumvented. Uh, the State Elections Enforcement Commission looked into this. Uh, it ultimately concluded with a rather peculiar settlement in which no fault was admitted. More than $300,000 was assessed not as a fine, I think, but as a so-called voluntary payment or something like that, uh, and uh, supposedly the whole thing was over. Now we hear the federal government is looking into it, that there's a grand jury looking into it. Maybe, Mike, you could begin first by kind of helping people understand what a federal grand jury is. Sure, Colin. The, uh, and by the way, that's an excellent summary of a, of a complicated case. <laughs> Good work. Thank you. But, uh, you know, a grand jury, many people uh, confuse a grand jury and a trial jury. And, for example, a trial jury has one case, and they're determining guilt or innocence you know, based on proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, a grand jury is, uh, is used primarily by the federal government, and Connecticut, unfortunately, does not have a grand jury system for the state uh, investigators for the most part. But uh, 
it can they it consists of 23 citizens. They're picked randomly, just like any jury, and they sit for 18 months, and they listen to numerous cases. Uh, you know, do, when they're when they're actually sitting, and they may convene maybe four to six times per month for an entire day, and they'll listen to numerous cases. And they they're actually an investigative tool uh, for the investigators. The investigators present evidence. The grand jurors listen, they, they, and you're able to converse with the uh, investigators. You can have a conversation uh, with the grand jurors, and, you know, you kind of think out investigative strategy with them. Should we get this bank account? Should we, you know, go for these, uh, these records, the tax accounts, you know, whatever? And, you know, and so it, it's a long process. Uh, for example, a case like this could take anywhere between six months and 18 months to resolve. One question that I have, if you have a grand jury that's already impaneled, and, and I'm, I want to make clear that Mike doesn't pretend to have any specific knowledge of this case. If he did, he wouldn't. And I don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if he did have any specific knowledge, he wouldn't tell us anyway. Um, so uh, this is not about your specific knowledge of the case, but a little bit more the way these things work. So we know, right. among other things, that our, our U.S. attorney, Deirdre Daly, has said openly that, that political and, and governmental corruption are very important to her as, uh, as, as a focus for her office as a priority for her office you've already got this group impaneled and i'm wondering if well first of all that means that they could react rather quickly to things that were going on and i'm wondering whether it's possible that having watched the state investigation conclude inconclusively conclude with a settlement that really had no findings attached to it uh the the emails that seemed to be at the center of the case were never produced uh, i'm wondering whether that would make a prosecutor look at that and go you know <laughs> maybe we should just go we got subpoena power we got all kinds of things that the state elections enforcement commission doesn't seem to have maybe we're needed here it does it work that way absolutely uh you know the they're you know they're tuned in to uh you know what's occurring at at the state and local and you know and federal level and you know for example with, with the settlement that the SAEC came up with uh with the state democratic party I mean, I, I'll be very upfront. I wrote an editorial to the Hartford Current, uh, rather upset with the settlement, where, you know, how can you settle when you haven't even seen the evidence and read the emails? Uh, and so the grand jury, you know, would absolutely, to convene it, to, to have a grand jury come in, you just need reasonable suspicion to start off with. And I, I think a payment of $325,000 for someone to not read the emails would certainly be close to reasonable suspicion. It's a very suspicious uh, event. And and I assume they do have broader and stronger investigative power than SEEK, that's the Elections Enforcement Commission, right. would. In other words, if, if they really want these things, can they just subpoena them? That's, uh, you know, again, I have no knowledge of what they're doing, mm. but uh, that would certainly be the next logical step. They can, you know, they can subpoena people to come testify, and they can subpoena documents, for example, banking documents, emails, uh, telephone records, credit card statements. Uh, you know, all those things are, are subject to federal grand jury subpoenas. And it's a very, very powerful tool mm -hmm. uh, used by investigators. Now, Mike, um, 
obviously you don't know uh, what the alleged offenses would be in an investigation like this, but we can talk a little bit about how people get into trouble historically and and and, and traditionally. One of the pro- one of the typical ways that you can get in trouble is, you know, it's not the crime, but the cover up that obstruction of justice is often one of the ways people get in trouble. So irrespective of what you did at the beginning, if you've subsequently taken actions to to conceal what you did, I mean, it's the Martha Stewart problem, right? Exactly. Yes. So 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 that's one. You know, there's a number of ways that you, you would approach this. And the first, the first step would be you gather as much information as you can. And as, as we've seen just recently in the last uh, 48 hours with email, uh, you know, in the, the lead up to the Democratic Convention and uh, the Democratic National Committee, emails, people put some crazy stuff in emails. And, uh, you know, so what's in those emails uh, would help the, the agents and the prosecutors determine is there a violation, and if so, you know what the, what the charges would be, uh, so they don't go in with a preconceived idea. They're going in with an, you know something fishy here, and let's let's see where the evidence leads us. So one one thing that I know, Mike, is that just from watching these things unfold, is that one of the most common charges, and I've never understood it, and now I have a chance to uh, clarify it with somebody of, of your magnitude, um, is mail fraud. I know that if the federal government investigated me tomorrow, I'd be charged with mail fraud, even though I almost <laughs> never mail anything. So why is, why is mail fraud so frequently kind of a baseline charge in these investigations? You know, the, 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 there's two, two basic statutes that are, are used very frequently. And again, when I was uh, with the FBI, I, you know, it would be something we would often turn to. One would be mail fraud, and the second would be wire fraud. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these two statutes, uh, you know, the key term in there is a fraud. So if, if they determined that a fraud was committed in this, in this matter, uh, let's say a document was signed by one of the parties that said, we will not use federal uh, you know, funds for this election from, you know, for, or prohibited funds. They sign that document and let's say they scan it over the wire mm-hmm. or they mail it via the U.S. Postal Service or FedEx it, you know, that is, uh, you know, a step in the fraud. And so that's where they've committed a fraud using the mail or using the wire, uh, you know, to, to you know, push forward the, the fraud. Um, it would be an overt act, if you will. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that makes this situation a little unusual is the presence of Mr. Urso, a guy with an FBI background, I believe, but also a, a background with SEEK. And, and he in particular, like you, I read your letter to the editor. Uh, you know, both of you guys seem very upset about this. Neither one of you, I believe, is an active federal agent right now. But how, how much can Mr. Urso get listened to uh, by either the grand jury or the investigation? investigators or I mean I, I'm sure Deirdre Daly has a Hartford current subscription she probably is reading everything <laughs> that he says right well you know I'm sure she's reading it and once again you know Char- I know Charlie Ur so well he, he is a outstanding and a very tenacious investigator uh, and he's he's very experienced in in corruption matters mm. uh, you know we work together on any number of cases from the John Rowland case uh, you know the to the state treasurer's case. And so, 
you know, I doubt that they're in regular touch with him. I mean, he's not a part of the investigation. And now that he's a private citizen, he retired from uh, C. Uh, he's absolutely not a part of the investigation. But he's, he certainly could be someone that, you know, has, has offered his opinion. And he's got an interesting perspective because, you know, he did uh, do some of the investigation on this matter. Um, Mike Clark, just as we get ready to conclude, and I do, I know you're on vacation, so thank you for uh, coming uh, okay. coming off the Good beach talking. and uh, and spending some time talking to us about this. But you know, going back even to the to the letter that you wrote about this, my sense is that it's not so much that you think a particular crime has been committed here and you know what it is and you know what the charge should be. You're upset about the fact that the basic kinds of fact-finding that seemed to be necessary uh, that and that became kind of a legal battle between the attorneys for the state Democratic Central Committee uh, and the investigators from the state agency, that those basic pieces of evidence were never located, never found, never pinned down. So the ability to make a decision about what did happen and whether it's chargeable, just never really materialized. And, and that, that's exactly right. To, you know, for an investigator, and even at the, you know, with the state level where you give seek this, this subpoena power, I mean, if they issue a subpoena, it's, it's in good faith, you know, uh, you should comply with that subpoena. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the, in this case, the state democratic, uh, you know, committee, you know, fought this subpoena tooth and nail. You know, they were willing to settle $325,000 to not turn over the records. Uh, God only knows they, they hired a very capable attorney, David Gollum. Uh, God only knows what his fees were. And, you know, it's just, it, it just, a subpoena is the bedrock of our, you know, investigative system. And, uh, you know, they've made SEEC, they're toothless. If no one will comply with the subpoenas, it's it's and for them to settle, I would have you know I don't understand why they didn't just let the judge decide and, and move on from there. Oh, but you, uh, but I think we know why they didn't let the judge decide. Well, maybe why why Seek didn't let the judge decide right, as a mystery, right. but but we know why the Dems didn't. Yeah, Mike, I'm sort of reminded. You know, there's a, a story I can't remember whether whether it's about uh, Vince Lombardi or Paul Brown or one of these sort of classic old football coaches who set some kind of very high curfew for his players about going uh, going out and carousing, and then the fine the fine for violating the curfew was exorbitant by the standards of the day. That could have been like a thousand back in those days. Uh, and and so let's say it was $1,000. So, you know, in your hotel room, you know, in your bed by 9 p.m. or whatever it is, or it's a $1,000 fine. And then supposedly the coach said, and by the way, if you find something that's worth a $1,000 fine, I want you to take me with you. Uh, <laughs> and I sort of feel that way about this. It's like, you really, if it was worth more than three hundred thousand yeah. dollars, not to show me the emails, I really want to see those emails now. Uh, absolutely, uh, you know, as an investigator, I certainly would have been over at the U.S. Attorney's office, uh, you know, at, with this settlement, and saying, "Hey, come on, this this is way too interesting. Let's we've got to we've got to follow up on." This. Well, it's going to get more and more interesting, and as you say, it may take quite a while. Mike Clark, a former FBI agent and a public-spirited citizen, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Colin, it's always a pleasure. All right. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, maybe your phone calls, huh? Let's do it.
presume Ben Folds will play the piano, right? You know, because if it's just Ben Folds and a piano and they're like, you know, on opposite sides of the stage, what fun would that be? All right. So, um, first of all, you know, I wish I could share with you all the communication that we do that you don't hear. Um, for example, I just got a message from Betsy Kaplan saying, I wear my sneakers every day now. They're like comfort food for my feet. I'm not even exactly sure what that means, but I think it's because she has to run back and forth because we keep having these emergencies. Anyway, we've done very well with this emergency. Uh, I happen to like emergencies. A special thanks to Lydia Brown, because in the middle of the conversation with Mike uh, Clark, we realized we really wanted to end this conversation with the theme for Beretta. So she got it for us and got it to us. And that was awesome. Let me uh, do some other specific thank yous. Before I do that, we are going to do open phones here for the last 10 minutes or so uh, about, uh, first of all, the, the the ride we took in Cleveland last week and the ride we're about to get on at Six Flags in Philadelphia. So our number is 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Uh, you can also tweet us at WNPR Colin, where Greg Hill, our tweet master, is waiting for your tweets and perhaps even waiting to tweet back at you. And he's even tweeting right now, even if you're not tweeting. So check us out. You should follow us at WNPR Colin on Twitter. We also have a Facebook page called The Colin McEnroe Show. So uh, go look at that on the Facebooks. This pr- uh, show was uh, produced today by Betsy Kaplan in her Wendy Davis sneakers. Uh, and it was uh, board operated by Jonathan McNichol. Uh, and uh, Esther Sheet. I think is on the phone. I can see who's on the phones. Yes, uh, is on the phones in there. She's one of our wonderful interns. And the part of Bill Curry was played by Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, so because she's got free time now, she can pursue her acting career. Actually, that's not even true. But, uh, she, Debbie Wasserman Schultz has a congressional election. <laughs> she now has to She's a congresswoman from Florida. I mean, when she's not being the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, which she's not being as of Friday. Uh, and so here she is all dinged up and she's got some kind of Bernie oriented challenge. She, she has to survive a primary before she even runs in an election. So there's that. Anyway, our phone number, 860-275-7266. Let me just mention a a few things that have been uh, coming to my mind as we head into this unbelievably chaotic Democratic National Convention. Uh, And and I guess what I would ask you is, did you, first of all, did you think this was going to happen? Of course you didn't. But supposedly the the Republicans were going to have the chaotic Convention. They were the ones who were going to have all kinds of, you know, nonsense going on, which of course they did. But and they were even going to have potential challenges to the the actual nomination of Donald Trump, which of course they did. But it didn't last very long. Uh, they were going to have all the nuttiness. Whereas the Democrats, I mean, everything was sort of rigged and nailed into place, and you know, it was just there you know, weren't that many questions. They would have the opportunity to put on a very choreographed and well orchestrated convention, and they're good at it. And they've got show business people who are more famous than you know, stars from the bold and beautiful. This is going to work right. And and so now they begin with this WikiLeaks dump. Now, I think it is one of the interesting and, and mind-boggling, I might add, aspects to the WikiLeaks dump is the very strong possibility that it comes from the Russian government, that there, there do appear to be uh, strong connections between the, the hacking of the Democratic National Committee servers and the Russian government. In fact, they have like the cutest names, right? Aren't they like Cozy Bear and Tidy Bear, and they have these code names for the hackers. They're all uh, for the hacking. There's two kinds of bears. I think one of them is a Cozy Bear. I forget what the other one is. So um, there's so there's this Russian angle that it, that it's it's not out of the realm of speculation 
that, in fact, the Putin government or some forces within Russia want to have an impact on this election. Uh, and the impact that they would apparently want to have would be to cripple the efficacy of the Democratic National Committee so that Donald Trump would have a better chance. And then Donald Trump added on to this impression last week with this, I would say, fairly ill-advised interview in which he said that he wouldn't necessarily defend NATO allies uh, that were attacked by Russia if he were president and they didn't have any, they hadn't paid their bills. So, um Anyway, uh, our number 860-275-7266. There's a lot more that I want to say about this, but I also do see calls coming in here. I want to get a few of these calls on the air. Uh, here's Frank in New Britain. Hi, Frank. Hi, Colin. How are you doing today? Good. Um, I noticed uh, in talking to um, one of your previous guests, uh, Nader, uh, you mentioned uh, during your interviewing uh, various Trump um uh, that their second choice was very often Bernie Sanders. I was kind of surprised that I never heard that um, reported uh, on NPR by you or anyone else. I was wondering, did, was that ever something that was a newsworthy item that was covered previously? I, I, actually, I actually have said it probably more than once. I might have said it more on the wheelhouse than on this show. But yeah, I think I, I could be wrong because it's all a blur uh, now. It's all just, uh, you know, it's like, Midnight Express. I'm just scratching little marks on the wall uh, until I'm released from this election cycle. But I actually think that we even maybe did open phones at one point about this where we had some people call in talking about this, people who were Trump supporters. I certainly where, where I discovered it was at the Trump rally in Hartford. I was talking to a lot of Trump supporters and I was surprised how many of them also liked Bernie. That was the other guy that they liked. Uh, they liked him better than they liked anybody else. So, yes, it has been uh, suppressed and it has been reported. It was not has not been suppressed. We do run everything through as many different kinds uh, of suppressions and conspiracies as we possibly can. But then occasionally we just eat these little things out. Is that what you were worried about, that we had suppressed it somehow? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just think that that would be the kind of news reporting, you know, honest news reporting that early on could have made a huge difference on well, how the, to, uh, the Democratic, uh, you know, uh, primary went. Well, to be fair about this. Uh, it was entirely anecdotal. So I, I don't even know. I mean, uh, and by the way, I'm kidding. We don't run things through suppressions and conspiracies. But um, but I mean, the um, it was entirely anecdotal. I mean, you'd really have to look at sort of somebody like 530. I worship at the Temple of Nate Silver. Uh, you'd have to look at 538 and see whether they've been able to come up with enough data to really support that conclusion. It, it did look, obviously, in, in polling, and this was reported all over the place, as though Bernie what was running better head to head against a whole bunch of different candidates, not just Trump, but many other members of the Republican field. Now, you have to remember, anytime you talk about something like this, you have to remember that you're in a primary cycle where nobody's run hard against Bernie, um, that Hillary Clinton, you know, didn't do the kind of damage to him that she could have done, although we now know from the WikiLeaks stump, they certainly thought about doing every possible kind of damage to him. But her calculated decision was that she would turn more people against her if she aggressively ran, went, went super negative against Bernie than if she just made the case for herself. So you, you don't really know how well Bernie would do in a general election cycle against a, a rival like Donald Trump who wouldn't have the same question. Donald Trump doesn't have to say, wow, I'm going to turn more people against me if I go negative 
negative against a member of my own party because Bernie isn't a member of his own party. So you got to bear that in mind, too, that the way that Bernie showed up numerically even during the primary cycles is a little unrealistic. Nobody'd ever run, you know, 25 different negative ads against him impugning every aspect of his life and character, which is what happens in a general. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, I agree with a lot of what you said. I just think there was a a big difference on how a lot of the uh, smaller and independent news outlets uh, did indeed report uh, all of those things that you mentioned. But I, I saw, uh, you know, a big disparity between that and the mainstream media. And, and as as a big fan of NPR, I kind of I think I, I just expected NPR to be uh, a little bit more balanced than than the sense that I I did get. All right. Well, we know we know people are you know you, we can't ever please everybody, you know, and you you can never please uh, Bernie people anyway. I mean, he seems like a very nice person. Frank seems like somebody we could please, but there are Bernie people who are going to show up in your studio and do an organized flatulence activity. You know, no matter what you do. Uh, here's Lori in Chappaqua. Hi, Lori. Hi, how are you? Good. How, how are you? Good. This is like Chappaqua. You, do you like live where the Clintons live? Is that? No, yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, yeah. Right down the road. Oh, wow. And one thing that's interesting is the only sign up for Hillary is the sign right in front of her house. There's not a single sign anywhere in Chappaqua other than in front of her house. Wow. And so yeah. that means there's not a sign in front of your house. No, no. <laughs> But the reason I wanted to call in is I've always been a Democrat. I'm a woman. If if anybody should want to vote for Hillary, it would be me. Mm-hmm. But especially now after this thing with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, yeah. there's no way I'm going to vote for her. Oh, wow. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but we are literally and actually out. Of, could you explain in 10 seconds why you're not going to vote for her? 10 seconds. I, I think that she's not. I think that she lies. I really do. Yeah, well, I think especially with this email thing, I think she cheated Bernie. All right. Listen, thanks so much for your call. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. We love doing phones, even if we only take two calls. Love, 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 love